And Lord, as we look in the scripture this morning, we'd ask that your spirit would make alive to our hearts the things you want each of us to hear and take away. In Jesus' name, amen. We're starting another series this morning, a somewhat short series, but we'll be in the book of Revelation. My intention is to only go through the first three chapters of this. Uh, if we went through the whole book, uh, be a long, long series indeed. I don't think that's where we're heading, but we'll go through the first three chapters at least. That includes the introductory passages in chapter one, and more importantly to me and the, the, the components that I'm looking forward to teaching through are the letters to the seven churches, which we'll get into in chapters two and three. This morning, this will be brief. This is only an introduction. We'll only look at the first three verses. <laughs> Let, let's start at verse one. Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. We'll work our way back through this here for a little bit. The revelation of Jesus Christ, unfortunately, when you say this, the revelation of Jesus uh, or the Revelation of John, different Bibles have different topics or headings for this, it becomes a title in t instead of a descriptive word. And really what we need to hear, this is Jesus being revealed. Uh, the old word from the Greek, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, means an unveiling, pulling away the veil. So we would think if there's a statue, a sculpture's made a new statue and it's covered with a veil or a cloth, there's this unveiling time when the sculptor comes and pulls the drape aside. That's the thought here. Or if the stage is set for the play and the play's ready to, to begin, the curtains are drawn away and you see the play begin unfolding before you. That's the thought here. So it's not just a title, the revelation of Jesus. It's describing what this is about. Jesus is going to be revealed in this book. Jesus is going to be revealed. <clears throat> Going back through the verse when it says, God the Father gave him Jesus the Son to show to his bondservants, the church, the things that would take place shortly. There's kind of a divine baton passing going on here, if you will. You see that the Father institutes all this. This is all coming from God the Father, who gives these things to Jesus the Son, who passes them to his angel, which we'll talk about a little later, who gives them to John, who gives them to us. So we're kind of on the end of this relay race, this divine baton passing that's going on uh, related to this revelation. As we begin this book, and just thinking of an introduction, one of the things that has struck me is, you know, if you are leaving on a, let's say, a long vacation or a holiday or something, and you're leaving your family or friends behind, just before you leave, you might say one last thing to them. And for you, it'd probably be something important like, uh, I love you, or tell so-and-so hi, or so-and-so goodbye, or don't forget to feed the cat, or something like that. Uh, but your last words, they'd carry some meaning because you know this is the last chance to see that person and say something to them. So they'd be meaningful. Or sometimes you'll hear about people who are dying, or maybe you've known someone dying, losing their health. And as their life winds down and they know that they don't have that much time left, their last words carry meaning, don't they? Because they don't have that many more to say. They don't have much more time to communicate. So their last words carry meaning. They're not talking about what they had for dinner or breakfast. and They're not talking about next year's vacation. But they're probably talking about something that's meaningful. So, some of those bedrock 
issues or relationships that would be important to them. If you leave a will, uh, hopefully there's something important in there. You're not only communicating what's, what's to take place with your physical possessions or wealth on earth, but hopefully you're saying something, that last thing to those people that you've had relationships with. So as we begin this book, on one hand, think of it this way. This is the last book of the Bible. It is the last book of the book of books. It's the last book in a lengthy library of 66 books. This is the last one. And so there's a sense in which this is God the Father's last communication to us as far as speaking through his word is this book. And so if we look at it from that vantage point, and if we want to say, what's the last thing God the Father wants us to hear about? What's the last thing? What's that important thing that as he speaks the last time in a book that's part of his scripture, what's he going to tell us about? So that when he closes the canon of scripture, when he gives us his final words, when the the boat's pulling away and he's waving goodbye, so to speak, Uh, Everything he's talking about is related to his son, to Jesus. So when we read this book, this last book of books, the last thing the Father wants us, the church on earth, to know about, he's saying, what I really want to leave you with is some information about my son. I want to talk to you about my son, Jesus. The Father loves the son. He loves to boast in him, brag in him, point him out. Just as Jesus on earth said he loved to talk about the Father and honor the Father, They love this two-way communication, this boasting in one another, as it were. And so in this last book, the last thing the Father wants us to hear about in his book, Book of Books, the Bible, he says, I want to reveal, I want to give you better insight. I want you to get to know my son. That's the veil is being pulled away from the person of Jesus Christ in this book, the last book of the Bible. How many people here have read this book through three times or more? A few, okay, a few. And that's what I would expect. Uh, Revelation kind of stands up there with uh, Jeremiah or maybe Haggai or some of the minor prophets. It's one of those books that we don't readily warm to, and probably because it is so laden with, yeah, Natalie, that's right, It is so laden with this heavy symbolism in chapters 6 through 18 that most of the time we get lost. So we just don't go down that road. We avoid it because we're not sure what it's talking about. We're not sure everything we're supposed to be hearing and we're lost in the symbolism. But I think if you read the book with this as your glasses or with this as the road sign, if you understand that when you come to this book, God the Father wants you to get to know his son, that kind of changes things for me. It gives me a different perspective. So think of it this way. Think of a brief outline of the book of Revelation like this. In chapters 1 through 3, Jesus is revealed to the churches. He's revealed in a number of different ways, which we'll see later. But he's revealed to the churches. In chapters 4 and 5, along with God the Father, he's revealed in the courts of heaven. So when I'm in those chapters, I'm seeing Jesus revealed as he is in heaven. Chapters 6 and 8 through 18 become the problematic ones, but think of it this way. These are the passages, the chapters, where Jesus is being revealed to the world through the judgments he commands, and there's a lot of them. He's also continuing to be revealed to the world through his testimony through the saints in the Jews. The church is gone. We won't, I don't know how much we'll talk or not talk about this. 
but through his witnesses. There's at least 144,000 Jews mentioned, sealed by God to be his witnesses on the earth. There's two key witnesses in chapter 11. But anyway, even in these hard-to-understand chapters, Jesus is being revealed to the world through his witnesses and through his judgments. In chapters 19 and 20, you see Jesus physically, the big deal, being revealed on earth as the conquering king and the promised Messiah. And then chapters 21 and 22, you see Jesus again in heaven, being revealed as the head over the new heavens and the new earth. So if I look at the book of Revelation that way, for me, it takes away some of that mystery. I understand that the father's saying, Mike, I want you to understand more about my son. I'm pulling the veil aside. The curtains are parting, and I'm going to give you glimpses, images, knowledge about my son that you didn't get before. So look at the passages that way and see if that doesn't help. Uh, I like to think of this, you know, if you go to a good restaurant or there's a great chef and you sit down to a multi-course meal, you know, and every course is great. That's like the Bible. And then, you know, the chef's going to save kind of his best for last. There's going to be some outstanding dessert. You know, that's going to be the end. And this is like dessert. The book of Revelation is like the ice cream with the bananas and the whipped cream and the strawberries on top. This is the way we should look. It is, Chris. Believe me, it is. This is the way we should think of it. God has saved the best for last. He's got this book, 22 chapters, in which he wants us to learn more about his son. So think of it that way. Don't think of it as a number of symbols that we have to overcome. But think of it as this is a process in which you, you gain more understanding, you see more clearly the person of Jesus Christ. Listen, on another book, the introduction to another book, Hebrews, same thought. Listen to this, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways... So God, this is looking back at the Old Testament. And the writer of the Hebrews says, God has spoken often in the past in many ways through the prophets. And those would be the the Old Testament books we have. He says, verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. He saved the best for last. Those Old Testament prophecies are God speaking, but they're speaking through a prophet or some other instrument generally. But here the writer of the Hebrews says, but now in these last days God has sent his son and God hasn't spoke to us through an intermediary. No, now he's spoken to us in his son. It says whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Same thought. God has spoken in the past, and it is God's word, and you need to know what it says. But in these last days, he's come in the person of his son, and he's spoken to us directly. And that's what this revelation is like. He saved the best for last. Also, Revelation 19.10, John is hosted by angels as he sees these visions, which we'll talk about in a minute. But in chapter 19, this... We read this and say, yeah, you know, dummy, don't, don't you understand? John falls to worship at the feet of this angel. You know, and my suspicion is John, whatever, whether spiritually or physically, he's in these visions, I don't know, but he's still mortal. He's not in heaven glorified yet. And when this mortal guy sees these angels, it's like seeing God. The glory and the majesty is so great, he falls down to worship the angel. The angel says, don't do that. 
I am a fellow servant of yours and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus, worship God, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If we would work through the book of Revelation and only see issues related to the seven bowl judgments and the seven trumpets and the seven seals, we would be missing it. Because God says here that the spirit of prophecy, if you get down to what's, what's the heart and soul of prophecy about, this verse says it's the testimony of Jesus. In other words, if we get all the timetables correct on prophetic scriptures, but we fail to see Jesus, we've missed the heart of the prophecies. So even in this book of Revelation, with all this foretelling about what's to come and all this heavy symbolism, which, by the way, all comes out of the Old Testament, none of it's new, None of it's new. All comes out of the Old Testament. If we work our way through that and we get the timetables and the judgments, etc., 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 but we don't see Jesus, we've blown it. We've missed it. He's the deal. So when we read through this prophetic book or Old Testament prophecies, we're supposed to come away understanding Jesus himself, the person of the Son. We've looked at some of these when we studied through the book of Daniel. And, you know, we studied about four kingdoms, these great earthly empires. But they were described as kind of markers along the way to what? To that last great final kingdom God would set up. To the stone that comes from heaven and it grows as big as a mountain and it occludes every kingdom before it. That's the deal. If we know about the Antichrist and we don't know about the real Christ, we've missed something. That's the deal. We're supposed to get to know Jesus himself. So in the end, the prophecy of this book is all about the person of Jesus himself. And when all is said and done, when we read this book or when we study through this book, the Father wants us to see his Son. That's the bottom line. He saved the best for last. The Father wants us to see Jesus the Son as we read through this book. So from verse 1, this is the revealing of Jesus himself. Personally, this is Jesus revealed. It's also, though, the revealing from Jesus. It's the revelation that Jesus gives, not only about himself. Look back at verse 1. It says, the things God gave the Son to give to us through the angel and John, the things which must soon take place, things that would soon take place. That's what we get when we look at chapters 6 through 18. Those are the things that would take place. So primarily he's showing us himself, Jesus is, but also the revelation, the revealing is about these future events, about those things to come. In that light, that's when we see things like the Antichrist, that's when we see the two witnesses, that's when we see the judgments God pours out in this last seven-year period, as I understand it. This is when the Antichrist and the false prophet are introduced. These are the things that must take place. So God's always, he's also showing us, not Jesus himself personally only, but he's also showing us what's to come. And of course, in the end, those events to come would all culminate in the return of the person of Jesus himself. So they're not an end in themselves. Telling us these events to come still leads to Jesus' personal return to the earth. That's where those end. Again, just briefly going back to the book of Daniel. Remember we talked before that it appears that God's prophetic time clock has kind of stopped. Remember we said that there's this great prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 that God said he had appointed 70 periods of seven for Israel. 
And as we look through that, it appears that all but one of those seven-year periods has already been historically fulfilled, and there's one left. So when you read a phrase that says something like, the things which must soon take place, God's not being tardy. John wrote this 2,000 years ago. Well, if we say, well, they didn't take place, and it's been a lot longer than soon, some other versions may say quickly. But the thought isn't that from the time these were given that, that this is a soon period, this 2,000 years. It probably has more to do with God saying, I'm stock, stopping this prophetic clock. In fact, if you read in Ephesians 3, when Paul's talking to the Gentiles in Ephesus about his ministry, he says the church, the truth about the presence of the church on the earth was a mystery, hidden by God, not revealed in the Old Testament. Now, we can go to the Old Testament, we can come up with some pretty good analogies, but Paul says that the church was something that had not previously been revealed. So that when we read passages like Daniel or Isaiah 61, we use as a key example, there's at least 2,000 years between the fulfillment of the first part of a sentence and the second part of a sentence. And that 2,000-year period is the time that the church has been being gathered out of the earth. And my understanding is when the church age is done, maybe sometime soon, maybe in our lifetimes, and God calls... 1 Thessalonians 4 calls the church out of the earth. That clock begins ticking again. We're we're back down to this seven-year period. So if we understand then that the things of chapter 6 through 18 all take place within this seven-year period, this is a quick sequence indeed. These things soon do take place. They come to pass once the clock starts again. They take place, a great many things take place in a very short, brief period of time, seven years. So it's not that God's being tardy or delayed. It's not that he didn't mean what he said here. But I think it's that he's put, he's kind of preempted his time clock. He's saved from Jews and Gentiles this one new man he calls the church. When this period's over, the clock begins again, and God will again be dealing with the, with the nation of Israel. The theology I'm, I'm telling you here is called dispensationalism, if it makes any difference to you. And you'll hear certainly others who, who will propose a different theology Uh, One of the things that I would challenge you to, if you believe that the church inherits the promises to Israel, there is no mention of the church in chapters 6 through 18 in this book. The church is not there. Israel's there. The nations are there. The Antichrist is there, but the church is not. The church is revealed again at the end of that period in chapter 19 and 20. So God's not being tardy. He's not forgotten his promises. They will take place. And once this sequence begins, it will take place in a very rapid succession. And right now, we in the church, we're telling people, Jews and Gentiles, be saved. The night's coming. Things are going to get worse. Okay, and then he sent it to to John by his angel. You know, I confess, I've read several commentaries And I'm not sure why we've got this holy baton race with this succession. I'm thinking, here's the end. There's nothing that keeps us uh, away from God and that the revelation would be kind of face-to-face, so to speak. And on one hand, it is. But on the other, you've got the Father to the Son to the angel to John to us. I'm not really sure why this is the case, but it is. And in the book of Revelation, angels take on a much greater role than you see during the Gospels or, or most, of the, most of history, church history or Old Testament history during the time of the Jews. Angels are referred to 67 times in this book. They're mentioned by name 43 times in 41 verses. 
Outside of that, in the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, they're only mentioned 46 times. So angels play a very prominent role throughout this book. And John has, as it were, a guided tour. The person conducting his tour is an angel. The angel's with him throughout. John asks questions of angels. We'll, uh, you'll see later if you read the rest of the book. Uh, Revelation 22, 6, The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Or verse 16 in that same chapter, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Uh, remember, angels literally means messenger. God's still using his messengers, these angels, in key ways throughout this time period. And an angel's conducting John as he has these visions, as John has questions, and as God shows him these things. An angel is with him, so to speak, taking him on his guided tour. Moving on to verse 2, John says of himself, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Really what he's saying here isn't related to other books he's written. I take it that the John here is the Apostle John who wrote both the Gospel of John and the three epistles from John. Some people say a person they identify as John the Elder wrote this book, uh, an elder out of the area of Ephesus. I take it this is John the Apostle, though, and John's telling us, not related to the other things he's written, not related to other ministry, but he's saying, these visions God gave me, these words he gave me to relay, I want you to know that I have faithfully recorded all of them. I haven't left anything out. So when he's testified to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, all that he saw, he's telling us, I didn't hold back. I'm giving you the whole deal. Everything God gave me to give you, I'm giving you the whole thing. Now it's interesting, in one passage here, he will say that there's thunder from heaven. And the thunder is actually voices. It's some type of communication. And he gets ready to write it down because he's being a faithful messenger. And God says, don't write those things down. God gave John, he gave him insight into something that he did not allow John to pass on. But everything that he did want John to pass on, he tells us here, I gave it to you. I've given you the goods. I've delivered the groceries, as it were. I'm not holding anything back. You're getting everything God gave me to tell you. The term testify here is the Greek uh, that we get the term martyr from. We always think of, of martyrs as those who die for their faith, and, and that is a great application. But much more broadly used, and typically in the New Testament, a martyr is simply a witness. We tend to identify martyrs who witness by their life, by giving up their life in the end. But the truth is, Scripture uses this term martyr to refer to anyone who is testifying about Jesus. John is a martyr for Jesus Christ. Here, just through his verbal and written testimony. Most of the other apostles ended up being martyrs in the ultimate sense. They testified through their death. But John is a martyr, as you and I are called to be martyrs, whether it's through life and our words or our speech or our conduct or through our death. We have the same call to be martyrs, to be witnesses. And I love, this. I love this thought from John. John says, I delivered the goods. I didn't hold anything back. When I think about an application level for you and I, you know, I'm thinking, what has God revealed to you and I? You know, if he hasn't revealed anything else, hopefully we've come to know him through the message of the gospel. 
We were sinners. We were lost, separated from our, by our sin from God. God sent His Son to pay the penalty for our sins. And that simply by trusting in Him, His death and resurrection, we're saved. You know what? We can be martyrs, witnesses of that message. And in fact, we're called to. John's telling us here, I faithfully have delivered the goods. What God gave me to say, I've done. And I read that and I'm convicted and I'm led to ask myself and I hope you're led to ask yourself, Lord, am I being a faithful martyr? Am I being a faithful witness to the people you've put in my life? Am I delivering the goods? Have I communicated the gospel to those folks in my sphere, at my job, where I work? The people I'm able to, have I been a faithful witness to those around me? Have I delivered the goods? This is a searching, probing question. We studied in home group this last week about Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said. And so he declared it to as many as he could. And that should be the thought for us. We should at least be communicating the gospel with those around us who don't know it, haven't heard. Characterized in Ephesians as those without hope, being without God. We need to be faithful martyrs, faithful witnesses. And, you know, to each other, too, we need to be faithful to deliver the goods. If I teach on Sunday, I shouldn't hold back. Paul said to the uh, elders from Ephesus, he says, My conscience is clear and my hands are free from the blood of all men. Why? Because I've declared to you the whole counsel of God. I didn't hold anything back, whether you wanted to hear it or you didn't want to hear it. I've been a faithful messenger. So when I stand before God, my conscience is clear. My hands are clean. He's delivered his own soul, so to speak, by being the faithful messenger. Not responsible for outcomes, but faithful to deliver the message, the truth. And we're also called on to do this with each other. And sometimes uh, that's not popular, and you won't be liked for being a faithful messenger. But that's what you're called to. That's what we're called to. And that's what John says here. I've given you the goods. I haven't held anything back. That's the standard to which we're called as well. Look down at verse 3. I love this as an encouragement to read this book. I hope that I've stirred you a little bit by thinking, okay, I'm going to see Jesus revealed in this book, so it's, it's a little less strange. It's a little more comfortable. It's a little more inviting. But also, look at verse 3. You know, clearly, God the Father knew that this would be a difficult pill to swallow, this book. This verse is contained, this promise is contained in no other book of the Bible. In verse 3, only book in the Bible, this verse is present, this promise, blessed, happy, successful, prosperous. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed, pay attention to, obey, do, the things which are written in it for the time is near. Here's a book that says, to you who read it, hear it, and think about, uh, historically, people didn't come to church with Bibles. They didn't have them. This was a letter John sent out to churches. And what happened? A guy stood up in front and he read a letter. He read it. Everyone else in the church heard it. He who reads, he who hears, and then the qualifier, he who does it. Pays attention. Keeps the things in this book. It says you'll be blessed. 
So here's a book that you and I can come to and understand. Lord, I understand that if I read the things in this book, hear your word, and keep them, you're telling me I will be blessed. I'll be happy. I'll be joyful. I'll be successful in all the right ways. This is a grand promise. This is a great promise. And even if the book's intimidating, years ago when I was a new Christian, I read this book literally. I read this book, new Christian, knew nothing. I'd read it through, and I thought, Lord, I don't know. I have no idea what I just read. I am clueless. What in the world did that all mean? And so I asked God, I I said, Lord, this is your word. I take it you want me to understand it, and I don't. And, Lord, I'm asking you to reveal, what does this book mean? What am I supposed to get out of this? And so, as I've studied over the years, I felt like I'm as comfortable in this book as I am in just about any other. Because God doesn't mean it to be a sealed-up book. You remember at the end of the book of Daniel? Daniel's given a revelation. And Daniel says, hey, angel, tell me, what does this mean? And the angel says to Daniel, seal it up. You don't get to know. You've recorded for the sake of others things that you're not going to understand. God doesn't say that about this book. If he did, if we're Daniel, we'd say, okay, Lord, I don't understand it, and that's the way it is. He says, no, those who read and hear and keep or obey, you've got to understand to keep, are blessed. That's the invitation to us. We'll be blessed as we read, hear, and do obey the things recorded in this book. It's a great promise. So that even if we come not understanding, we can say, Lord, this is your word. I understand you mean me to understand and to keep it. So, Lord, you open the eyes of my understanding. You help me to understand these things. Related to that, this is like Psalm 1, which is one of my favorite psalms. Blessed starts the same way. Blessed is the man. Happy, joyful, successful is the person who avoids the wrong thing, keeps God's law, as it were, by avoiding the wrong things, and meditating in God's word. And then it describes that life. We've talked about this out of Jeremiah 17. Like a tree with all the water you need, always green, always healthy, always fruitful. This is the same thought for the book of Revelation. Here's this promise to put your roots down in the water of this book, and you'll be blessed, and you'll be healthy, and it will be good. You'll like it. You know, in a world dying for happiness, so to speak, uh, here's a book that promises happiness. On one hand, it's a hard book. I mean, it's as hard as a rock. It is a rock. It's as hard as a knife. It is a knife. Hebrews says God's word is like a knife. It cuts. It separates things. It shows things for what they really are. But because it does that, Because God gives life through truth, that's what we really need. So here's a book that promises if we'll listen to its words, if we'll be in its message, and if we'll keep those things recorded there, we'll be blessed. Wrapping this up, I could invite you to my house and sit you down and show you my home movies. Eric's thrilled, and he can hardly wait to come over. I could invite you over, and I could get out my vacation pictures. And you'd see the people you don't know and the places you don't care about. Wouldn't that be great? There's a sense in which, <laughs> there's a sense in which 
a little different. The payoff's a little different. God is saying, I want you to come and sit down. I've got some home movies to show you. It's not about the past. It's about the future. And you're going to see the, the person I love to look at myself. You're going to see my son. And you're, you're going to see not the things he's done in the past so much. You're going to see where he's going and where he's taking you and where this grand story that you're a part of, where it ends. God's inviting us to his living room to watch his family movies, not of the past, but of the future. It's not boring. It's the most exciting vacation you could ever take. There's no dull time. There's no downtime. It's a great invitation. And here it is, blessed, the person who reads, the person who hears, and the person who obeys. Let's pray. Lord, I've still got images of those houses on the hill in Kansas City sliding down, totally destroyed. I think of the words out of Matthew 7, that the wise man is the one who hears your words and keeps them, does them, Lord. He builds his house on a rock, just like the song we started with. A rock, Lord, a foundation that does not fail. Lord Jesus, we invite you by your Spirit to make yourself clear to us. Lord, we confess that like the church in Laodicea, we are poor, blind, and naked. Lord, we humbly ask that as we work through the pages of this book, this last, best as it were, book of books, that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would hear and see and keep the things you want us to, and that, Lord, doing that, we'd have life, we'd have joy, we'd be blessed, we'd be successful like the tree planted by the water. And Lord, whether your word appears to be hard or comforting, whether it appears to be a knife or a drink of water, help us to submit ourselves to your truth. Help us to find healing in your name. Help us to revel and delight in your son and in your plans and his plans for the future, for ours and for the world's and for you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.